turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And then we're going right back to Daniel, okay? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This will help frame the entire sermon for the evening. Now, if you're not a Christian today and you're like, what are we actually doing just now? Like, ask the person next to you where to turn because maybe they know the Bible, uh, hopefully. Um, but we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And actually, what's, what's really cool is the book that we're in, the book of Daniel, not only tells us the story of a historical person named Daniel who served under three world empires or uh, uh, kings of world empires. And, uh, I mean, you, can, you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. that that's like history. And God spoke through Daniel and to Daniel back then, way back when, about things that would happen in the future, which is really cool. So it's this thing called prophecy, and that's what we're discussing tonight. If you like titling the message, the title of this message is Signs of the Times. Signs, that's right. Stop your crime. It's a sign of the times. Now, we have to pray that these demons stop stomping the ceiling because I don't know what that is. It's very scary, though. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul, the apostle, messenger of God, says to this specific church at Thessalonica, he says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, Peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who, who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Let's pray. And Lord, we just pray that as we open up your word this evening, that once again, you do what you always do. You're faithful to speak, and we pray that you do through the power of your Holy Spirit that you help us to just focus in tonight, remove every distraction. Lord, we know that you, you have a very specific thing that you want to tell us. And so I want to know what it is. So I pray that you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, Paul the Apostle is writing to the specific church a very relevant warning to them. He has to tell them, like, hey, like, maybe you don't realize this, but we actually believe that the world is coming to an end. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, you have to believe that. Here's why. Even atheists believe that the world is going to come to an end. But scientists, looking at the world that we're living in, knowing that this world started off with an abundance of energy but is losing energy, people predict that the world will come to an, to an end through heat death. In other words, the world is going to lose all of its energy. The sun is going to lose all of its energy. And what happens to stars when they lose all of their energy? Supernova. Yes. You like whisper it. Supernova. Right? So this world is coming to an end. 
And maybe you're like, well, it's not in my lifetime, so who cares? Can you imagine living, like, pretend that God's not real? I know it's, like, terrible to say that, right? Pretend God's not real, and, and then you just believe that the world will come to an end through heat death of the universe. Like, that is probably the most depressing thing that you can ever believe in. Now imagine living in that kind of universe. Like, wow, we are the last generation of life ever. The end, it just all ends. How would you live your life if you knew that, like, the world itself, the universe was coming to an end? I don't know. I just, it'd be really depressing, I guess. It's like, why, why do anything? Because tomorrow we're going to die. And that's kind of the mentality that people have today, is if I'm going to die tomorrow, then why don't I just try to live it up for today? But what the Bible teaches is that the world, yes, is coming to an end, but that's because God is coming to intervene to save the world, not let it go to heat death. He's coming to renew what we have ruined. All of us sin, we make mistakes, and we've distorted a good world that God himself created, not only for our pleasure, but for his pleasure and for our good. To be able to see the world, and and think about this. When God created the world, he didn't create it with cities. He didn't create it with instruments. He didn't even create it with, like, roads. All that stuff we created, and God gave us the materials to do it. God intends for humanity to always be creating. As he is the ultimate creator, we in his likeness are supposed to be creating. And that's like really fun, isn't it? To be able to take things that like where nothing is and make something out of it. That's because that desire comes from God, who is the ultimate one who created something out of nothing. And so God coming to rescue the thing that we have broken, he fixes it and he restores it. Just like when you see those antique shows and the thing that was like super busted up and then someone takes it in and fixes it and makes it better than even before, or do you have those home makeover shows and whatever? Like, that's what God is doing in an infinitesimal scale with our universe. And so we as Christians know that since God has come to intervene and save the world, we know that he's going to be judging the world as well. Because we can't just have it the case that people keep on messing up the universe, messing up our world and hurting each other. So God has come to judge the world. Now, when God comes to judge the world, where are you going to stand before God? Are you going to look at God and say, well, God, I've been basically a good person? Because you know when you say that, this is what you really mean. I am better than these people. Because you wouldn't be a good person if you were the only person on planet Earth. Because you would have no one to compare yourself with. Except God, who is perfect. But as long as you look at other people around you, like, well, I'm better than that person, so I, I guess I must be a pretty good person. I don't kill people. I don't really hurt people intentionally. That itself is arrogant. But what the Bible teaches us is that there's no one good, okay? And some of you are like, this is review, but this is why you should pay attention. Because someone's going to ask you, and you're going to have to tell them. You're going to have to tell them the same things I'm telling you. So this is evangelism training right here. That God created the world perfect. We mess it up, and we can, on our own righteousness, on our own standing, go before God and look him in the face and be like, I am a good person. So if you're standing before God at the gates of heaven, what would you say? If he's just like, man, why should I let you in? I'm looking at you and like, so uh, what do you think about this? Would you say I'm a good person or would you say I'm a terrible person? But I'm thankful that your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins. So I'm accepting his payment. His, what he did on the cross, I believe that's sufficient for me to get in. That's what gets anybody in is that God looks upon his son, Jesus Christ. So this is the story of our universe. And because of that, Jesus Christ is coming again for us. He died for us because he loves us, and he's coming 
back for us because he loves us. You know, the Bible describes all of humanity, like the beginning and the end of, of humanity as a wedding. In the, in the very beginning, Adam and Eve were created, and there's the first marriage. And it's going to end as well as Jesus returns for his bride, the church. So it begins with the wedding, ends with the wedding. It's all about marriage. Okay? So, um, that being the case, I'm trying to think if I should go down this tangent. I think I will. <clears throat> Someone asked me the other day, they're like, well, what's the point? Is the point of living on earth to go to heaven? Is that the point as Christians? Like, if you're a believer in Jesus, is the reason why we're here so that we make it to heaven? It's like, no. Imagine if the point of your relationship was to get married. Imagine, like, you're dating somebody and you're like, as long as we get married, like, oh, that's it. And once you get married, it's over. It's just going to be boring because what are you going to do when you're married? It's weird. Marriage is actually the beginning of, your, of the fulfillment of your relationship, not the end. Heaven is also the beginning of the fulfillment of our relationship with Jesus. So when we think about heaven, it's not like we live all of life here on this earth and then it's the end and then we're in heaven and then everything's boring and then we're just like floating angels or something. But heaven is actually the beginning, the very beginning of everything that we're going to inherit for all of eternity, which will be really exciting. So that being the case, we are to be consciously aware that Jesus could return at any moment. So in this letter, Paul is writing saying, hey, listen, there will come a time that Jesus is going to come back for us, and we who are still alive here on the earth will be actually caught up. And this is where that word rapture comes from, is, is that idea of being caught up in the air to be with Jesus always. Now, knowing this, he says, don't be drunk in other words, don't, don't like try to ignore the facts about the universe and why you're here. Be sober-minded. Be clear-minded. Think clearly so that you can be able to be able to, to maximize your time here on planet Earth. So, why do I say all that? Well, when Paul's writing this, he's saying there's certain things, knowing the times and the seasons, he says, right there in verse 1, there are certain things that will be indicators of Jesus' soon return. So you're looking at the news today, and you always hear the people talk about prophecy. You know, if you go on YouTube or you go to different church conferences, Pastor Lloyd and, and Jason Falzerano just came back from a prophecy conference. And sometimes it's just so confusing and so mind-boggling that you're not really sure what to do with it. But that's because there's some people that are, like, super stoked and super smart. And so what they do is they just, all they're doing is they're, they're watching, they're looking, saying maybe this is an indicator that Jesus will return soon for his church. So I trust what they say, and I think it's really interesting when they talk about that. But we as believers should consciously be looking at prophecy and, and be continually looking at the things in the scriptures and saying, is it time? Is it time for Jesus to return for his church? Did you know that one-third of the Bible is prophecy? One-third of the Bible is prophecy. I think it's hard for us to ignore it when God himself is so obsessed with telling us about it. Now, we talked about last time a little bit about how God is the only one who can know the future. So for those of you that are like nerds like me, I'm not like an actual nerd. I'm a fake nerd. I'm a poser nerd. Because all of my like smartness, whatever I have, is not really facts. Like if you ask me historical facts or like math and stuff, I don't know. But I like trick people into thinking that I know a lot of stuff, okay? But um, 
So if you think about it, how do you know the future? How can one tell what's going to happen tomorrow? It seems like science can tell us what's going to happen in the past, right? But if, if science can tell us what happens in the past because everything's fixed, things are predictable, we know that tomorrow's going to uh, come around, like there's going to be 24 hours in the day, there's going to be 60 seconds in a minute, all that stuff. It's not like tomorrow there's going to be 61 seconds in a minute. It's not going to change suddenly. Like that's what science is, right? We can predict a little bit about the weather. We can predict all these different things based on science. So if we can look back at science and say this is, how, this is why it happened, this is how it happened, that's what science is all about, why can't we systematically look at the future and say this is how it's going to play out? It seems like when you make a decision, you're doing it based on reasons. And what science, neuroscience, not like everyone in neuroscience, but there's some, um, some niche, there's a niche movement of neuroscientists that say that if you examine your brain and we were able to open it up, that we would be able to tell everything that you would do in the future because it's just one synapse firing and, and another one's igniting. It's like a chemical reaction in your brain determining everything that you do. This is what a like, very small niche of scientists say. But if that's true, then why can't we predict the future? I think it's not just that we don't know enough about science. There's actually something called the Heisenberg Principle. And uh, if you want to know more about that, you can ask Evan Margareta. You're not Evan. Why'd you raise your hand? Oh, well, you probably know. He's just really smart. So ask that guy, too. He might know. The Heisenberg Principle basically is this. I'll just read it because there's a definition. The position and velocity of an object cannot be both measured exactly at the same time, even in theory. So what in the world does that mean? So there's this guy who discovered this principle that said... You know, like, when you, when you, like, throw a ball, you can predict it's, like, how fast it's going to go based on its velocity, all that stuff. But the smaller the mass, the more unpredictable it actually is, which is really weird. It's like, why would that even happen? But when you get to the subatomic level, it's like you can't predict anything. That's what quantum physics is. Everyone's really confused because it seems like things are sparking out of nowhere in and out of existence for absolutely no reason. So you can read, like, Lawrence Krauss who's a guy who wrote this book called Something from Nothing, and he tries to use that to prove that like things can pop into existence out of nothing, whatever. Um, but the world is unpredictable. And here's a very, very basic example of that. We can look at the weather tomorrow and say, it will probably snow, right? But did you know, <laughs> you're really excited about that. <laughs> we can predict that it will probably snow tomorrow, but why can't weathermen predict what will happen in two months? They can say, like, based on the trends, it's going to probably be like this, but why can't I just go on Google and say, in two months, this will be the exact weather, if it's all scientific? That's because you get to this level where it just gets so crazy, and there's, like, causes and effects that we don't even understand, that even with our best scientists, we'll never be able to predict what will happen in the future. And that's because God is the one who's behind all of it. Only he knows the future. We in our finite minds can never understand how things will happen in the future. So, since this is God's signature, once again, he tells us what's going to happen through this thing called prophecy. So, we're going to go through the details in Daniel chapter 8. Now, don't worry. As we go through this chapter, I'm just doing brief comments because a lot of this is a review from last time. Because we talked about Alexander the Great, all that stuff. And once again, if this is your first time here and you're just like, what is this? This is not our normal Bible study. Normally, we just have stuff that's like really, I don't know. Uh, shorter. And that's because 
of some reasons I can't think off the top of my head. Normally, I say things that hopefully you can understand, but we're doing stuff that's a little bit confusing because, once again, prophecy is so important. The Bible says that it's important, and um, it's exciting, actually, when you read it. To be honest, the reason why I avoided this for so long is I don't really understand it, but I've tried to understand it, and that's why we're here tonight. Okay, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So stop right there for a second. Daniel has another vision. Remember last vision he had, uh, he, we learned about the four beasts, and we learned the difference between man's point of view, God's point of view. Here, Daniel has another vision, and here now he has a ram, so he's super confused. What in the world does this mean? And there's going to be an angel named Gabriel that explains it. Verse 5, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a noble horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing be beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power on the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Okay. It's going to say this later in the chapter, but I might as well tell you ahead of time. Once again, the ram represents the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. You have the four world empires. You have Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, Greece, and then Rome. Four world empires, okay? So that being the case, you have the ram who actually, historians tell us that the ram was actually the national emblem of Persia. So to the person living in those days, it would make a lot of sense. Like, oh, he's obviously talking about Persia. It's like if we know what the team mascots are for our sports teams, I'm not even going to try to pretend like I know mascots of sports teams, except Mr. Met, because that one's easy. Um, but they would just know. I know what he's talking about. I know what nations talk about. But even if it was unclear, it tells us later in the chapter. And he has two horns. One's bigger than the other because Persia was actually stronger than the kingdom of Media. Medes. So... <clears throat> Then you have the goat who came from the west across the surface of the whole earth, verse 5, right, without touching the ground. So great speeds, once again, Alexander the Great. We talked about him as a winged leopard last time. Now he's a goat. And remember, this is before Alexander the Great was born. And the goat had a noble horn between his eyes, and he came to the man that had two horns, and he destroyed him, beat him up, kind of like the game we just played. He broke those two horns. No one was able to stand him. And what happens to him in verse 8? Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Remember, uh, uh, Alexander the Great, he actually died early. He died at 33 years old due to pneumonia or malaria, whatever it was. And in its place, he turned it over to four people, four generals, four notable ones came up towards, towards the four winds of heaven. Their names are Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander. See, I obviously know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Duh. 
Verse 9, and out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Glorious land just being Israel. That's pretty easy to see. And he grew up to the host of heaven, and he cast down some of the hosts of the sun and stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, which would be God. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one, another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the given of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, if this is making you anxious, just so you know, verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I rose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. If this is making you sick, it made Daniel sick, okay? So you're in good company. Um, <clears throat> so what in the world does all of this mean? I don't know. Let's pray. Lord, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I did my homework. So what's really interesting is comparing it with the last dream, the last vision, we remember that there was another horn, and in its place were ten horns, right? Ten little horns, and then three of those horns got broken off by the one horn, and that was the Antichrist. But here... This horn isn't coming out of Rome, it's coming out of Greece, because the goat is Greece, right? And then talks about Greece's horn. So what in the world could that mean? Greece's horn is doing things that seems antichrist-like, and he's rebelling against the prince of the prince of the host and taking away daily sacrifices, all that stuff. So what in the world does all this mean? Well, let's go to verse 15 and then we'll talk about it. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, then suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision returns to the time of the end. So stop crying. It's the sign of the times. Verse 18, now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the point in time, the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, he didn't make that up. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Okay, that makes sense. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn that the four st- that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of the nation, but not with its power. Right, it didn't get conquered. Alexander the Great just suddenly died. Verse 23, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached a fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not with, by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause the seed to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many of their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And then Daniel was sick and then went back to work. And he's, like, telling other people, and every, nobody has any idea what he's, what he's talking about. Details. All right, let's talk about what in the world is happening here. You have that horn that comes out of Greece. So it seems like Antichrist-like, but it can't really be the Antichrist because that's something that happened in the past. After Greece came Rome. Well, once again, there's this guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes who came out of Greece. He actually came out of... Um, there were the four generals. There was Seleucus. He came out of his lineage, and he took over. He, he rose to power. 
And this guy was terrible, especially for the Jewish people. Around the, that time, Epiphanes actually means the illustrious one. He had on their coins, he had the mint kind of print out on their coins, Theos Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. So this guy was absolutely terrible. He was absolutely insane. And he started doing some of the things that you read here. He took away the daily sacrifice. Once again, this is all before Antiochus Epiphanes was born. But you can look in church history to find out these things actually happened. Or just looking at history itself. Antiochus, he tried to end, and he did end daily sacrifices in the temple. He desecrated the altar by sacrificing a pig on it, forbade circumcision, and made it a crime to have the Torah, the law, the Bible. So, very evil guy, and then it says here that this guy is going to be destroyed without human means, and that's exactly what happened. He actually just went insane. He just lost his mind, and then he died. So, he didn't get conquered. Okay, so now let's transition to how this applies today. That's a lot of details. What do we do with all this? Because that was a lot of information. I'm glad that you asked. Tonight, we're going to learn in five minutes, ten minutes. I promise I won't go later than 10 minutes, okay? I'm going to set my timer. So this is your uh, chance to tune in. Don't tune out. If you had no idea what I was saying, this is really important. Okay. Two signs of the times for us as believers. Number one, false Christs will increase. False Christs will increase. Turn to Matthew chapter 24 real quick. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, okay, we're talking about him, standing in the holy place, abomination of desolation was when they sacrificed the pig on the altar. Whoever reads, let him understand. Verse 16, Then, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not, not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight, flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there shall be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, no, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So in the Bible, you have this principle of a double fulfillment of prophecy. There's a near fulfillment, and there's a far fulfillment. A near fulfillment so that you know that it's God speaking. Imagine if I told you, like, hey, God gave me a prophecy in 200 years, there's going to be an amazing thing happen. There's uh, Donald Trump's going to resurrect from the dead and become president again. Like, whatever. Like, none of you would be able to know that because we're all going to be dead in 200 years. It'd be easy for me to say that. So what would happen is there would be a near prophecy and then a far prophecy so that you would know that what's going to happen in the future is going to be sure as well. We can know for sure that there's going to be another Antichrist that rises up because there's already been a type of Antichrist in the past. And what Jesus says is, one of the signs that I'm returning soon is that there will be many false Christs that will arise. So for us, there's two action points. Number one, recognize the real battle. Recognize the real battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. Have you ever had a thought where you're just like, where in the world did that come from? A temptation? Maybe you're just depressed and you have no idea why. Yeah, maybe it's something you ate. Maybe you didn't get enough sleep. But it's very possible it could be spiritual warfare. That there's an enemy of your soul that is trying to deceive you and feed you messages of lies. Whispering in your ear, saying things that you shouldn't believe. Because they're going to lead you farther and farther from God, the one who loves you. There will be many false Christs in the last days. And one of our jobs is to recognize the real battle. To realize that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not here raising swords and raising guns and going to war. What we're doing is we're doing spiritual war, not physical. We're looking at the fact that there are people kept in their sin because of the lies of Satan. There are people around us. When we go evangelizing at the mall, we're not just walking up to people and like, if it fails, it's because I didn't know what to say. If it fails, perhaps there's a spiritual battle. Maybe there's demons. Maybe there's spiritual uh, powers of darkness at work that are keeping certain people in bondage. Why is it the case that people struggle with the same sin for years and years and years and can't be able to kick it? Why is it, that, why is it the case that people are stuck on drugs and it gets worse and worse? Why do people get hooked on pornography and it gets worse and worse? Maybe because it's not just a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. And therefore, we need to fight it with spiritual weapons. That's the second action point. Take up the right weapons. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Everyone knows it well. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We are to take up spiritual armor to remember that since this battle is spiritual, the only way we're going to win is we are guarding first our hearts, right? We're put on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. When the enemy tells you a billion times that you got to pray the sinner's prayer over and over and again so that God accepts you or forgives you, you say, no, I'm secure, I have a helmet. My mind is straight. I don't have to worry about where I go when I die because Jesus is the one who saves me. That you are putting on that armor every single day and you're praying, recognizing the value of prayer. We're not neglecting it when we go evangelizing, when we're in our schools, before we take a test, when we're in an argument. Imagine the next time you're arguing with a friend, you just stop and say, why don't we just pray? First of all, you look like a tool, right? Like, I'm going to be spiritual when I'm going to pray. But second of all, it's going to be awkward. No one wants to, no one wants to take a, a second aside, even if you do it privately, to just pray when, the, when you're in the midst of a heated argument, right? But that's because it's a spiritual battle. There are things that can only be won through prayer, and that's what we have to do. Number two, here is your second takeaway for today. The first one, obviously, we just went over, which is, that there is, um, false Christ will increase in the last days. There is a spirit of the Antichrist that is alive and well in our day. And we need to be recognizing that. Number two comes down to this. The second sign of the times is that truth will be thrown to the ground. Truth will be trampled. You can say it that way. Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a real person in history, ended daily sacrifices for the Jews, desecrated the altar, forbade circumcision, and made it a crime to have 
the Bible. I don't think that's too far-fetched to see those things could happen in our day. That it would be a crime for you to read the Bible, to own a Bible, to believe what you believe. For it to be a crime for you to make your daily sacrifice, to enter the house of worship, to go before your altar, to sing praises to the Lord, to consecrate yourself to God, to say, I want to be sold out for the Lord. It wouldn't be weird to me to, to see that happen in our day. It wouldn't be strange. I wouldn't be surprised. Because there is a spirit of the Antichrist that wants to take truth and throw it to the ground, trample it. In the last days, the Bible says in 2 uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. That in the last days, people are not going to look for what's right. They're going to look for what feels right. Here's an indicator for, for when truth is trampled on the ground. When people are no longer wondering what are right and wrong questions to answers, but they're looking for what feels good. When people say, you can believe whatever it is you want to believe. That sounds and it feels right. But it's not right. It's impossible. No one believes that. No one believes that when they go to the doctor, that if the doctor says, you know, just, you know, I don't know, like, I, maybe you have pneumonia. But if you just go to, the, like, the, the pharmacy and just ask them for anything, if you ask them for, like, you know, Tiger Balm or whatever, like, anything will work. Just whatever feels right. Just go, go into the pharmacy and just wave your hand and just be like, man, what do I sense is the right antidote for my disease? No one believes that. Now, why do we believe that the most important disease, death, the most, the most important issues of life have no actual cure? Why do we believe that? It's because it's not politically right to say that. But that's when the society that we live in starts to take truth and trample it to the ground. So now it's not about what's right and wrong. It's what feels right and what feels wrong. Second indicator of this is biblical illiteracy. People don't know the Bible. Biblical illiteracy. And you see that today. Like, maybe I've said this before, but today is like the most exciting time to be alive and be a Christian. Because people don't know what the Bible teaches. You can have, and I've had these conversations recently where you just talk to people about Jesus. And they're like, oh my gosh, I had no, like, I never knew that. I never knew. And like the axioms we see all the time about like, it's not, it's not rules, it's a relationship. You know, it's not a religion. When you say that, people have never heard that before. And we get to share that with other people. But it just comes from knowing the scriptures. And you can memorize a couple of verses that have helped you. Like the very first Bible verse that I ever really memorized was Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your requests made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I learned that because I was anxious, and I had anxiety attacks, and I had depression, and I had all these different issues. And it was helpful for me to know that there was a God who could give me peace that surpasses anything I could sur surpasses anything I could understand. And you can have that peace too. And when you tell people stuff like that, it like blows their mind. So memorizing scripture, knowing the scriptures is helpful because then you can go and help other people. Another, the third indicator, I believe, is biblical hostility. Biblical hostility. Meaning that people will make fun of you, persecute you, because you believe the Bible. And there are certain verses they don't agree with, certain stances they don't agree with. 
And so they're going to pick on you and, and tell you, like, listen, if you want to be my friend, you have to disregard what it is that you believe. I don't think we have to necessarily get there yet. But as the time increases, uh, I should say decreases between now and when Jesus returns, it's going to get worse and worse. Don't think the world's going to get better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And therefore, we as Christians are supposed to be the beacon of light, the breath of fresh air, that when people step into this building, think about this. Everyone look up here. Pay attention. I really hope and wish and pray that when people step in for the first time, they step into a building they want to be in, that this place is a beacon of light. You step in and like, man, like all these people are friendly. All these people are nice. I hope that's our testimony because there's people out there that are not nice. People out there that backstab one another, people that hurt and lie and cheat and steal and all these different things. But to be able to have one place where it doesn't matter what you look like, what your interests are, you are welcome here and we love you. It doesn't matter how, how long you've been here. Like if someone in your family is hurting, we'll pray for you. If you're hurting, we'll call you on the phone. You can call us at any time of the night. You have my number. If you don't have my number, you can get it afterwards. Same thing with all of these leaders here. We are here for you no matter what you look like, how long you've been here, whether you're cool, you're not cool, whatever. And I hope that that's your testimony too. They feel the same thing about you. That I know you're a dependable friend when I don't have people like that. The sad thing is, I know so many really nice people that don't believe in Jesus. Sometimes my friends that don't know Jesus are actually nicer and do more good works and good things for other people than believing friends. It's just the way it is. Like my unbelieving friends will like pay for my gas and like, like look out for me and like what, when, I, when I have problems and, and needs and whatever, I can call them. Like do we have that testimony as believers? That's what it should be. Instead of thinking of Jesus as the means to get what I want, that, my friends, is dangerous and that will lead us to a false Christ, one that we have made for ourselves, the God who's a genie. The reason why I follow God is because of the American dream, the pursuit of happiness. If I follow Jesus, I'll get what I want. But what if following Jesus means that you deny yourself? Whatever desires you have, you say, they're not that important because I am going for what's eternal. People, people are eternal. I'm investing in souls. I'm investing in friends. I want to see my lost friends in heaven one day. I want to go up there alone and say, like, man, I, I came here by myself. I want to know I brought people with me. And you have the power to do it. I'm not special. I just read the Bible. And I have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit and you have a Bible, you can do it too. We're to do it together. We'll be following the Lord together, doing good works together. So how do we combat it? Very quickly. And then we're done. I know I said I'd be t 10 minutes. And it's true because now I'm finishing. Sorry. I sinned too. How do we combat it? Number one, preach the word. If truth is getting trampled, the only thing we can do is just share it. That's it. If people are lost and hurting and dying and they're believing lies, just tell them the truth and speak the truth in love. The Bible says preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. If someone were to ask you tonight, hey, like, so how do I, how do I know that God is real? Would you be ready? Would you be out of season? People are going to ask you when you're not ready, when you're not expecting it. I've had friends do that. Like, so do you have any life advice? I, uh, okay. And you just share it with them. 
we should be ready whether we feel like it or whether we don't. I mean, like, there's been so many times that I've been like, oh, I don't want to go evangelizing. I don't. Oh, my goodness. I, didn't, I don't know what your, like, thoughts of me are. You probably have a realistic view of me. Like, I'm a very simple person. But, like, there's been so many times I didn't want to go, and then I did. Or then I didn't want to share with somebody, and I did. And they left, and it was, like, the best night of my life. Right? Because as you're sharing, you're like, I'm affecting people's souls for all of eternity. I didn't even say anything that special, but that person's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow, I'm going to change the way that I live based on what you just said for five minutes. Like, that's, that's crazy. And we have the opportunity to do that because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Here's the last way that we combat when um, truth is being trampled. Live it. Live it. Let your conduct be something where people say, man, that's what I want. Have that testimony. Do you have a testimony of joy? Do you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Or is our testimony the person that always complains? The person who always gossips? And listen, whether you gossip or not, if you're a believer in Jesus, Jesus loves you. It's not like Jesus loves you more because you don't gossip. But listen, how much more joy would you have if you learned to live in thankfulness, gratefulness every day? That you were not buying into the world that tells you that you should be a consumer of everything. You always need more clothes. You always need to spend more money. But you actually said, the little that I have, I'm actually thankful for. Because it comes from God. And instead of spending money on new clothes, I'm going to use that money to bless somebody else so they can buy clothes because they don't even have any. That is kingdom living. Living in light of eternity because souls are eternal. Not our clothes. Not the food. Not the drama. All of that's going to fade away. Instead, we're going to look to the one who maximized his time on earth for us, Jesus. The three years of ministry he had, he used every one of it to make sure that he was fulfilling God's purposes and reaching people around him. Let's pray.